Our scripture reading is Psalm 101. No, try that again, 121. You can find this on page 440 of the Pew Bibles. Please pray with me. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Sorry. Thank you, Maggie, for reading the psalm for us. Before I get into this this morning, I just want to let you know um, there's a great series, well, it's not really a series, it's just a video, I guess, of uh, Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated the message, and Bono from U2 discussing the Psalms. Um, that I, I'm not really talking about it today, but I just found it during my research, and I think uh, a lot of people would like to see that. As David's taught us these past two weeks, the Psalms of Ascent are a songbook meant for journeys. They are written for the three times a year many Jews made pilgrimages to Jerusalem for Passover, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Tabernacles. And in those days, even up to the time of Jesus, safe journeys were not a foregone conclusion. You might not even realize you know this, but his parable of the Good Samaritan is a perfect example. Because the reason the Samaritan even had to help in the first place is because the victim had been on a journey and was attacked. These travelers would have felt real danger, not just today's nagging worry in the back of their mind like, oh, I hope I don't get a flat tire and have to call AAA, have them take me to a nice hotel. So it was heartening for them to remind themselves of both the reason for their journey and the power of the God that would accompany them. That's the reason for the progression David's described to us in his previous sermons about these Psalms of Ascent. The three-part cycles of these Psalms begin with a confession of the hardship the pilgrims are facing. Then the next reminds us of the help that they can count on. And the third leads the traveling group into God's presence. In the last two weeks, David's told us about the other aspects. Psalm 120 talked about speaking peace when all around us are for war. 
Psalm 122 last week spoke of the future Jerusalem as a beautiful and just city where you belong. But this morning, we'll return to the meat of the cycle and look at Psalm 121 that focuses on the help we have to deliver us from our troubles. That's perhaps why 121 is the most beloved and most familiar of these three psalms. As I studied these this text the last couple of weeks, of course, my mind naturally tried to connect with what I was reading. Now, like I alluded to, our travels in 21st century America are far from that journey to Jerusalem, so far that it's hard for us to even imagine how those pilgrims felt. But let me tell you about a trip I took about 20 years ago, and maybe that'll come close enough to help us start to understand that pilgrimage. In 1995, my seminary roommate and I decided we wanted to see the country. At this point, I can't even remember why we thought we should or could do this, but I do recall that it had something to do with a PBS documentary about the national parks, particularly those out west. And we were both struck by the fact that we'd never been there, so we decided we should do something about it. Over the next couple days, we learned that by using Amtrak, we could leave South Station and make a huge loop of the western edge of the United States, and the whole thing would take us about a month. We visited the Grand Canyon, Yosemite National Park, and Glacier National Park, among other places. Now, it certainly wasn't a long walk along roads filled with bandits, but taking a train from Boston to Arizona is also a little different than hopping in your own car and driving there. Did I mention we were camping for a large part of this month? Or that the train trip across the country takes about four days? In fact, speaking of bandits, one morning I woke up and looked out the window and we'd stopped in Dodge City, Kansas. As in Wyatt Earp and Gunsmoke. As in, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. That Dodge City. And I even got off and walked around the streets Yes, I know, I'm pretty brave. Well, I won't waste our time this morning going into every detail of that trip, but I do want to focus on one of those stops to get us thinking about this morning's psalm. Show of hands here, how many of us have visited the Grand Canyon? Perfect. Um... (laughs) Well, maybe you shared my experience there, because after arriving on a bus from Flagstaff and getting our campsite, we took a brief hike down into the canyon along the Bright Angel Trail, which is the main trail on the South Rim. And I can still remember almost 30 years later what it felt like, even if I struggle to put it into words, because the rock walls there are so immense and so gigantic that they make it made me, at least, feel frighteningly small and insignificant in an almost spiritual way. What was I next to a beautiful, immense creation like this? A couple years before that, I'd also been lucky enough to travel to London and visit St. Paul's Cathedral, which is gigantic. It's an impressive church, but let me tell you, that place is nothing next to the walls that surround you in the canyon. I remember one of the things that struck me the most was I thought, oh, look, there's little bushes up on the side of the the mountain. And then I realized, no, 
Those are full-grown palm, uh, palm trees, pine trees. Uh, this wall is a lot bigger than I could ever understand. That first day, we literally retreated from there back to our campground because it felt so overwhelming. Also, I'm afraid of heights, so maybe that had something to do with it. But, but I don't think that's what the writer of Psalm 121 is thinking about. There's a few different reasons he was likely not just looking at the mountains as a sightseer. And we'll get to those in just a second. But to finish my story, I'll just tell you that the next couple of days, as we hiked back down into that canyon in absolutely baking sun, like I had never felt before, looking at the edge of a trail and the cliffs and sharp hillsides of rock, it did seem just one wrongly placed footstep away. It certainly did bring this psalm to life for me. Today I'd like to look at our text in three ways, and they do roughly parallel the way Psalm 121 unfolds, but we'll be jumping around a little bit, so it's probably still a good idea to open up your pew Bibles to page 440. There are a lot of big words for what we're talking about this morning, and if I wanted to sound impressive, I could have used some of them. I even considered it at first, but then I thought back a few Sundays maybe even a few months, time is not my forte. Uh, when David was preaching about Paul and the super apostles, and using big seminary words just sounded to me like a super apostle kind of thing to do. <laughs> so let's just keep things simple this morning. Today we'll discuss the world around the pilgrims, their God, and the assurance he gives them. So let's get started. What do you suppose the psalmist was thinking about when he wrote, I lift my eyes, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? At first, the answer seems completely obvious, doesn't it? He's just looking at mountains and pondering God, right? Well, yes, that's true. But the problem with that phrase lies in the word just. He is doing those two things, but there's so much more that's going on. I know, it's funny, huh? As far as I can tell from the research I did, and I'm fairly confident I know where to look, nothing is, nobody rather, is absolutely certain what this verse means. But there are three very good possibilities, and I'm going to share them with you in order of how likely they are to be true. The first is the simple fear of danger that I've already mentioned. The psalmist is looking at the mountains and imagining everything that could be there. For that matter, is thinking about what probably is there. Wild animals and bandits are the first two things that would probably come to mind. But at the same time you think about that, remember that this was not 2023. As recently as, a, as 1500 AD, human beings still believed enough in the mountains as the dwelling places of gods to sacrifice people to volcanoes in South America. And anecdotally, I read that belief in the volcano goddess Pele in Hawaii continued through the early 1800s. So yes, the travelers would be afraid of wolves and bears and highwaymen. But it's also probable that they were thinking of something a little more spiritual too. And that brings us to the second possibility. 
at least a part of the answer to what the psalmist is thinking about is contained in the biblical term, high places. Eugene Peterson describes a high place this way. During the time this psalm was written and sung, Palestine was overrun with popular pagan worship. Much of this religion was practiced on hilltops. Shrines were set up, groves of trees were planted. There were nostrums, protections, spells, and enchantments against all the perils of the road. Do you fear the sun's heat? Go to the sun priest and pay for protection against the sun god. Are you fearful of the malign influence of moonlight? Go to the moon priestess and buy an amulet. Are you haunted by the demons that can use any pebble under your foot to trip you? Go to the shrine and learn the magic formula to ward off the mischief. Whence shall my help come? From Baal? From Asherah? From the sun priest? From the moon priestess? We see mentions of these places in various books of the Old Testament. In Leviticus 26.30, I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. In 1 Kings 11.7, then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem. And finally, in 2 Chronicles 33.3, for Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals. So we have natural dangers, places of idol worship, but the third and most likely explanation, which is essentially proven right by the psalm that follows it, is that since Jerusalem is both the pilgrim's intended destination and Israel's highest city in elevation, the psalmist means that they're lifting up their eyes to look, whether physically or just fit, uh, figuratively, at Jerusalem and the temple. And that finish line would seem to be very far away, along a road full of dangers that would be physically and mentally hard to reach. And all these together explain the rest of this psalm. And one final factor that confirms this interpretation is the fact that in both Hebrew and Akkadian, the phrase lifting the eyes is an idiom that means looking at something longingly or with desire rather than looking at it with dread. But that's getting into ancient language stuff, and we'll get to that a little later. In his book, Love Beyond Reason, John Ortberg writes, Scripture alternates between hair-raising risks and assurances of impregnable security. And when we look at the lives of the great followers of God, we see this combination of breathtaking risks with an almost brazen confidence of being safe in God's hands. He offers a couple examples, Moses defying Pharaoh, Israel invading the promised land, David's battle with Goliath, and even the disciples choosing to follow Jesus when he himself said that he had no place to lay his head. Ortberg continues, none of these actions make any sense unless the actors all understood from whence came their help, unless they understood that they were in the watch care of a great big God. So let's think for a moment about what these verses tell us about what the psalmist understands of this great big God. In verses 2 through 6, we see a list of confidence-building reminders about Israel's God. Where does our help come from, ask those who are repeating or singing this psalm to one another. 
And in essence, the rest of the psalm answers, well, let me tell you, and it ought to make you feel a whole lot better. In the interest of time this morning, I'll talk about three of those. But even before we get to those specifics, notice verse 2's reminder that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Because it's here at the start of the psalm for a reason. There's no need to be afraid of a mountain when you realize the one who's helping you is the creator of not just mountains, but the sun and moon, the stars in the sky, and the animals in those hills. And then verse 3 starts talking about specific ways God helps, saying he will not let your foot slip. This is both reassuring in a specific way, because you won't slip, and a more general reassurance that God watches over us. The first thing that came to my mind when I read this was a Father's Day, uh, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 10? Loose? I don't know. I'm not, again, I'm not great at time. When I took Lucy to climb Mount Monadnock. Now, there's no need to discuss what a silly idea that was on my part. It's Father's Day, we'll have a little grace. Instead, picture the two of us climbing the trail. I'm sure many of you have climbed this mountain, and you know that the trail to the top is much trickier than you might expect for such a popular place. Lucy's always been good at scrambling up rocks and always enjoyed it, but even she needed help. There were enough tenuous moments of balance or stones that looked stable but turned out not to be, that she was lucky I was with her and that I was so much bigger than she was. As long as I was holding her hand, it might be momentarily unpleasant to have a rock tumble out from under her, since she'd suddenly be dangling from just her arm, but she wasn't in real danger. And so, yes, I was specifically watching her feet and doing my best not to let them slip. But that kind of specific care assumes the same kind of care about other things as well. This assurance speaks to just how much God is watching out for us, what kind of tragedies he's protecting us from, even if things aren't completely comfortable for us. We may complain that our shoulder got wrenched out of its socket, but compared to what could have happened, thank you, God, that you didn't let my foot slip. And yes, in case you're wondering, Lucy and I actually did make it to the summit and back down that day. In the rest of verse 3, and then restated in verse 4, we get the second assurance. God is awake and watching out for us. I hope we all know or remember or have experienced how good it feels to go to sleep hearing someone watching TV in another room. You can relax knowing they're still awake, still able to deal with any danger that might come along. To take my illustration back outdoors and maybe more like the psalmist's experience, This is an even better feeling when you're going to sleep in a tent, but others are still awake and talking around a campfire. No need to worry about wild animals or wild people when there's still a fire burning. I'm sure that feeling of safety is part of what this psalm is speaking to, but there's also something deeper we need to know about here. If we zoom out a little bit, we discover that unlike Yahweh, the false gods of other nations were in fact known for needing their sleep. In the ancient Mesopotamian creation epic Enuma Elish, the god Apsu complains about lacking sleep because of the noise made by his offspring. 
In the Atrahasis epic from 1800 BC, the god Enlil is awakened from his restful slumber by the humans and demands that they be cut off from food as a punishment for waking him. And the important thing is, in neither of these texts does it record any sense of surprise that a deity was asleep. But Yahweh will neither slumber nor sleep. And now you see why that's worth noting. And third, the psalmist provides one more interesting specific. He says in verse 5 that he is your shade at your right hand. Shade in this case isn't meant like a tree in the sun, but more in a general sense of watching over. But that's an explanation for another time. Today I'd like to concentrate on that right hand. We've all heard or used the phrase right hand man, right? Does anybody know its origin? I didn't until this week. Well, it's because in the warfare of Old Testament times, clear up through the Middle Ages, your shield was always carried on your left arm. Certainly it's assumed that you'll carry a weapon in the other hand, but it's still unprotected in a way that the shielded side is not. And what if you throw your spear? Or what if your sword breaks? It would then be really helpful to have a fellow soldier on your right side. But you know it would be even more comforting? knowing that the creator of heaven and earth is in that spot. And that's exactly what verse 5 tells us. Well, that's all really interesting stuff, but we can't appreciate the meaning of these verses without taking a step back and discussing some language stuff. I'm sure people in some of my seminary professors would cringe to hear me call it that, but that's really what it is, stuff about language because there are literary things happening here that really are worth noticing. The first I'll point out to you in the form of a question, and this is when it's going to be helpful to have your uh, pew Bibles open. Why does the narrator seem to change perspective from verse 1 to the rest of the psalm? I lift up my eyes. Where does my help come from? Verse 1 is speaking in the first person. But then the speaker directs their attention outward. He won't let your foot slip. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Well, as far as I can tell, this is simply proof that these Psalms of Ascent really were meant to be responsive. Perhaps this is the first part of a, this part, first part is meant for the leader to begin the song by making a declaration about themselves. Then either the rest of the group is speaking to him, as in, my help comes from the Lord, and then the rest of the group says, yes, your help comes from the Lord. Or the leader is turning his attention from himself to the rest of the group, as if he is saying, God watches over me. In fact, he watches over all of us. But more importantly, I have a word to teach you, because it comes up in this psalm a lot. Now, I'm well aware that Ashley and David have this thing going on with his head. I would never dream of approaching that kind of whatever it is. But if you want to really understand Psalm 121, you really do need to know about shamar. Starting in verse 3, this verb is repeated six times in six verses. And when a biblical writer does something like that, trust me, it's significant. If you look at verse 3 and then at verse 7, you'll see that one is translated watch and the other says keep. But guess what? Same verb, shamar. So why is it occurring here as two separate words? 
Well, that's the wonder of biblical translation. Words aren't like simple arithmetic. Two and two will always equal four. But shamar can mean watch or keep. It can also mean to guard. As in Genesis 3.24, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Or to be on guard, like in 1 Samuel 19, verse 2, when Jonathan tells David, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow. Or a patient waiting and watching, as in Psalm 130, when it says that watchmen wait for the morning. It can even mean guarding in the sense of observing or celebrating. It's used in this way in Deuteronomy 5.12 as part of the Ten Commandments. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay, that's a whole lot of words said, a whole lot of Bible verses mentioned, but why? How does this help us? I would say for two reasons. Going back to the original language gives us a deeper appreciation of the text we're looking at, where it's clearly very important to the biblical author. Our modern translations are the result of hard work by well-meaning people that are probably just as dedicated to their translating as Iris is to hers. But it's still good for us to know the full possibilities of meaning for the most important words in our text. And related to that, it's worth knowing because through all these different meanings of Shamar, we glimpse a fuller picture of what God does for us, which is the psalmist's intent in the first place. On our pilgrimage toward the new Jerusalem, God is watching for us to keep us safe. He guards us from things outside us that would hurt us and our own sinfulness that might harm us even more. And he's patiently watching like a bodyguard. So where does our help come from? It comes from God. Well, we've done a lot of talking. Well, I've done a lot of talking. You've done a lot of listening. Hopefully, we've all learned some interesting things about the Psalms in ancient Israel. But the question is, what difference does that really make? Because the reason we asked why the psalmist looked to the mountains, the reason we noted these aspects of God's greatness, the reason we dug into the original Hebrew of the Bible isn't just a pastime. You could watch TV or play games on your phone for that. And as much as the only child part of me appreciates being the center of your attention, I could have just skipped the preparation part if listening to me talk was the only point this morning. So what is the point? As we each follow the long road of obedience leading toward the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down from heaven spoken of in Revelation 21, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, how can this psalm of encouragement to Old Testament Jews on pilgrimage to Jerusalem help us? What does any of this have to do with our real lives? Ultimately, what we're looking at in these eight verses boils down to acknowledgement, endurance, and assurance. I promised myself when I started writing this sermon that I wouldn't talk to you about bikes, and I tried so hard. But sometimes the illustration is just the best illustration whether it has bikes in it or not. Plus, it's Father's Day, so just cut me some slack. Anyway, during the time when I was a pastor in Vermont, I decided to do a six-hour-long race in New Hampshire called the Foliage 400. 
This was while Kathy was pregnant, so she wasn't really able to come along. So she wrote me some notes as encouragement. We'd only been married for a couple of years at that point, so being the um, unsanctified husband I was at that time, I think when she gave them to me, my attitude was probably something along the lines of, yeah, 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 thanks, honey, I got a race to get to. But she knew better. So anyway, I showed up pretty early in the morning at some middle school in the middle of nowhere where the start and finish were located. And I did the silly little things you do, like filling up your water bottles and tightening your shoelaces or whatever. And then ready, set, go. And the first lap passed by pretty uneventfully, then the second and the third. But I was beginning to notice that I felt a little lonely, a little discouraged, and was beginning to wonder why I paid money to do this to myself in the first place. And it was then that I opened the first of the notes my wife had thought to write for me ahead of time. And suddenly, it felt like she was there with me. I was less alone. Someone believed in me. She believed that I could keep going, and that helped me to do it. So in a very real way, words saved my day. Now, <laughs> I wish I could tell you some sort of fairy tale with a happy ending, because honestly, that would work great for finishing off this sermon. Those notes gave me an inner strength I'd never known I possessed, and that day I won my first race. Unfortunately, that's just not the case. Her encouragement could only do so much to make up for my lack of fitness. I think, I think the six-hour race became more like a four-hour race and then drop out, but that's not her fault. But the race results that day aren't important to us. What is important is putting into perspective just what Psalm 121 is. It's an acknowledgement that, yes, the pilgrimage is hard. As Flannery O'Connor once famously wrote in a letter to a friend, it's harder to believe than not to. Our strength, our motivation, not only does, but is sure to waver from time to time. We'll look up at the top of the mountain and ask if we really can keep climbing. Whether we're in ancient Israel, or at a bike race in New Hampshire, or in Danvers in 2023, this psalm is a resounding yes. But even more importantly, it's a reminder that the Almighty God who made heaven and earth, the sculptor who carved the intimidating walls of the Grand Canyon, doesn't just believe in us from afar. This psalm isn't a messenger from a king saying, his majesty knows you're climbing and applauds your effort. Instead, it reassures us that this mighty power, the Lord of the Starfields, as songwriter Bruce Coburn calls him, cares so much about us that he's close enough to us that he won't even let our foot slip, more attentive than a father helping a young child climb a mountain could ever be. He's always awake so that we're even protected when we let our guard down. We can rest from our journey in comfort, knowing that he's alert and ready to keep any danger from disturbing us. He's there for us in the places where we're weak. When we think we're in control of our life and using the sword of our own strength, and it suddenly breaks in our hand, and we have no idea what to do. God's there before we can even think to ask, like the day my car's tire blew out and I was suddenly spinning across all four lanes of 95 before I even knew what was happening. Why or how I was not hit by a car, or even damaged by the trees I flew into backward, or, 
why uh, I can't figure out what I wrote there. <laughs> it's a question anyway. Why? How, what happened there is the real question, and I have to answer God at my right hand. So what does this psalm matter? What can we remember about it? What does all this con contextual stuff and theological stuff and language stuff mean in the end? We're a church filled with children, and thank you, God, for each and every one of them. But today I thank him in another way because it assures me that a whole lot of you are sure to understand the way I want to end this morning. We all put on a front, call it adulting, call it survival, whatever you'd like. But God knows our hearts, and he knows the truth. Every one of us has our moments of doubt, of weakness, of exhaustion. When things have gone so badly that we can't imagine how we're going to continue. Maybe it's something we did. Maybe it's something we have no control over whatsoever. But we're left feeling incredibly vulnerable. Have you been there? I've been there. This psalm is like a children's book for grown-up believers, because just like small children, we still need assurance. Think about it. Think about the books you read to your kids over and over. It even repeats things the way a great children's book does. God watches you, it says, and through the psalmist, he repeats it over and over until we can't possibly miss it. Picture the young child. Are you going to be there if my foot slips? Yes. What about when I'm asleep? Yes. What if it's really sunny? Yes, I'll watch out for you. Or what about when the moon is full? Yes. What about if I go away or when I come back? Or, or... And each time, God is our loving parent calmly repeating, I'm taking care of you. It even ends like a classic children's book. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get it, we say. But this is just until I'm grown, right? How long will you take care of me? So the psalm ends its reassurances with both now and forevermore. With that in mind, let me end with some verses from Matthew 18 from Peterson's translation, The Message. At about the same time, the disciples came to Jesus asking, Who gets the highest rank in God's kingdom? For an answer, Jesus called over a child whom he stood in the middle of the room and said, I'm telling you once and for all that unless you return to square one and start over like children, you're not even going to get a look at the kingdom, let alone get in. Amen.